Lord, would you, would you give us yourself? Would you just meet us this morning and let us be with you? And, uh, and know right now that we have sat at your feet. Give us your spirit, Lord, in your name. Amen. One of the things I admire about the younger set these days is that there seems to be, at least generally speaking, a recovery of caring about what you put in your body for food. I remember a fast food joint that shall go unnamed in which I used to frequent that said they were better because their hamburgers were square rather than round. I don't know how that works. And then I found out at some point that the chocolate milkshakes that I like so much were some rather substantial percentage of wax. And that's what they were made of. So I respect the young people today for a sense of, hey, wait a minute, where did that come from? What's in that? How many chemicals make that thing up anyhow? But you get people harping on, on them, right? Or on you guys, right? Oh, the reason you don't own a house is because of all the money you spend on avocado toast. I hope you haven't heard it. I've seen it. I mean, as if it's that simple. But it isn't that simple, but is it? Being young these days, looking at the future, not always that easy. And I think a lot of young folks today feel the weight of that. They feel the weight of all that you might say they don't have. They feel the weight of student debt. They feel the weight of how everyone looks so good on a resume. They feel the weight of having to get that secondary degree to really be in the running for this or that. And then at the same time, in spite of how amazing everybody looks on paper and all the things they've done and all the rest, everybody has imposter syndrome. Everybody feels like, I'm not qualified. I don't count. And all of that here in the land of having been brought up, being told from day one that anything you dream of is possible for you. It's tough. Right here on the North Shore, it can be especially tough. I mean, this is an intense place of all kinds of winners, and it's just sort of there all the time, right in front of us. So where does God meet us in those places when we feel that inside and we feel crushed or just sort of depressed or just sort of paralyzed by all this sort of stuff? Where does God meet us in that when we're painfully aware of everything that we don't have and how we can't figure out how this is going to work out. Well, this summer we're looking at moments in the Old Testament when people faced a situation. Maybe it was a positive thing. Maybe they needed to discern what to do. That's this morning's situation. Maybe it was a difficult fork in the road where they had to make a hard decision about a lesser of evils. Maybe it was a crisis that came upon them. Whatever it was, it's an important life moment. And they lift up their eyes. It's sort of an ancient Near Eastern idiom. And in lifting up their eyes, they get out, get the blinders off, they see a bigger picture, and God shows up. And whether he shows up, as we saw the first week we did this, whether he shows up actually in in body, in person, and shows up there, or whether he shows up in miraculous power involved in nature, or whether he shows up just in lifting their heart and lifting their mind and lifting their whole perspective. However it is, somehow they lift up their eyes and God shows up. So this morning we're with Abram. Now, you might have noticed in the reading that he's still Abram. He's not yet Abraham. So the the two biggest 
gospel cross prefiguring things that will happen to him in chapters, I think, 15 and 17. They haven't happened yet. We're in chapter 13. And it's common in the ancient Near East that when a particular covenant is struck, and that's clearly done in certain ways, then the person on the receiving end of that covenant's name is changed. God so far has called Abraham. God has promised to Abram, but he hasn't yet done that particular thing that makes the binding of the covenant super clear. So Abram's still Abram. But he's already done some really amazing things simply based on the fact that God spoke to him. It is outrageous, audacious in his day and in his world that Abram would have believed that there is only this many gods, that there's only one God, completely audacious. People would have been like, well, aren't you just either absurd, crazy, or presumptuous like nobody else? To think that there's only one God and that that only one God would actually bother to talk to you. We have this kind of prejudice that, you know, back then the world was small. They didn't know how many things were in the sky. We do because we have the the wonderful James Webb Space Telescope. I mean, I love that stuff. But, you know, we think, oh, they thought it was all just right here. Well, actually, they didn't have light all over the place. They actually knew the heavens were full. And they did have this sense of life is bigger than us and all the rest. They had it in ways that, to some degree, we've lost. So if Abram goes around saying... There's only this one God and he spoke to me and because he spoke to me and gave me a promise for the future and because of that, I left my tribe. Well, tribe is the organizing social unit of nomadic peoples. To leave your people is not only presumptuous, arrogant, audacious, crazy, but it's also just flat out dangerous. Who's gonna take care of you? Where's your protection gonna come from? And Abram actually believes that there's this one God who's spoken to him and he's acted on it and he's gone and, and he's voyaged about. Now he hasn't always gotten it right. There are times when he's done some things where he clearly didn't get it right and things that matter. But the Lord has stayed with him and kept working with him. And now, if you will, Abram comes to the first bit of closure, we might say, of the first part of his story. They leave Egypt, they journey back up, and come back into the general Canaan area, and he goes to the place, we're told, he goes to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and I, however you say it, to the place where he had made an altar at first. This is a place that's important for him. God has met him in this place, and he has made an altar there. So there's a sense of closure on the first piece of his story. And then there's a sense, Abram, you assume, being human, there's this sense he'd be like, oh, good. Man, that was tough, but we did it, <laughs> right? We're back, all set, here we go. Promises fulfilled from here on out. Health and wealth gospel, here we come, right? It's not that simple. Abram has brought Lot with him, and in terms of nomadic peoples, they've gotten to the place of as good as it gets. I mean, their flocks and herds are multiple, They have silver, they have gold. That's as wealthy as you can be in that world, and Lot is as well. But that brings its own challenges because the land where they are can't support them all. So their herdsmen start arguing with each other. 
So Abraham is forced to sort this out. Their herdsmen are fighting amongst themselves. Their kinsmen, they're supposed to be getting along. This is supposed to be the happy future from here on out. But now Abram has to deal with this. And he has to sit down and he has to make a choice. So now we come to the first of five big moments in this story. This, this story is, is so fun. It's so good. And this is the first of five big moments. What does Abram do when he's sitting there going, oh, I can't believe it. Oh, my word. Really, guys? Okay. So he's got to sort this out. So he calls on the name of the Lord. Now, I love this. I love it. In the ancient world, the name, the name of someone holds in some wonderful way their whole persona. It represents their character, their work, their whole being, and sort of what you get when they show up. How many of you have a name that you know is meaningful in some way? You were named something meaningful on purpose. In other words, not just your parents thought, ooh, that's neat, I'll call you that. Or they didn't go look to see, like, you know, what's the most popular name these days? I don't either do or don't want that one, right? How many of you have a name that you're like, this has a meaning, and I know I got a name for a reason. Ancient world, everybody. Everybody's like, what else is there? That's what you do when you name somebody. I don't know if my parents did it on purpose or if I got lucky, but one way or the other, I got really lucky because Timotheo in Greek means honoring God, Timos Theos. I love it. I hope, I don't know if they did it on purpose, but it's great if they did, and it's awesome if they didn't. My kids love to laugh at my middle name. My middle name's not so great. My middle name is Wayne, and my last name is Clayton. And Wayne is the Middle English word for wagon. And if you put all that together, you get a wagon hauling a ton of clay. And it's not all that impressive, really, is it? Meaning, though, the name has meaning. So Abram calls on the name of the Lord. Now, this is the first time in the entirety of the Bible that we are told of when someone called on the name of the Lord. A few chapters earlier, we've been told at this point, men began to call on the name of the Lord, but it's sort of just reported to us that it happened over there. We aren't seeing an actual story when someone actually does it. We don't actually know what it means yet. What does it mean then? Abram says, Lord, your name's wrapped up in all this. Your character's in it. You got me into this. You brought me here. This is why I left my family in the first place. He goes to the Lord and he says, look, here I am. He says, I have much to rejoice in. I give you thanks. He says, but look, here's what I'm worried about. This is bigger than me. Look at the anxieties I face in this next step. And he says, you know, remember, you called me. That's how this whole thing got going. You're the one who spoke to me out of the ether that everybody thinks I'm crazy for having believed in the first place. And Abram meets with the Lord. Now, these early narratives way back in the, especially back in the hinterlands of Genesis, they're sparse. They're super sparse. These, these people hadn't discovered yet how to emote about everything. And they, and they didn't do a lot of, this is how I was feeling. And this is what makes Augustine's confession so so you know, amazing to people. They're like, good heavens, he's writing about how he felt. These are incredibly sparse. So we do a bit of feeling our way through it, a bit of reading between the lines. 
So we don't actually know what happened when Abram called on the name of the Lord until Abram acts. And the what happened becomes clear through the way that Abram acts. And Abram is going to act having met with the Lord in the same way, no surprise, that Jesus tended to act when he walked among us because Jesus is the Lord. So Jesus inspires Abram to go to Lot and get Lot and take him and you know show the thing to him and essentially to ask Lot an open-ended question, which side do you want? You can have either side you like. We've got to separate. You, can, you go one side, I'll go to the other, or you go to that side, and I'll go to the opposite. You get to pick. Jesus does this all the time. All the time, people are coming to Jesus with their trouble or whatever, and he responds to them with an open-ended question, which reveals what's inside their heart when they answer. So Lot, second big moment, Lot is the one who first lifts up his eyes. Lot lifts up his eyes, and he sees that that side is good, and he chooses it. But in essence, Lot, in a sense, he's not in that moment judged by God. God shows up in that lifting of his eyes. It's not that Lot is judged by God as much as the question reveals what's in Lot's heart. They already know that the men of Sodom are very evil. But Lot looks at it, and he's got the wide-angle lens, but he's lost his depth perception. And instead of seeing the long game, and instead of seeing the promise of God, and instead of having called on the name of the Lord and met with the Lord, and having this sense of hope and confidence and trust, he goes, well, that looks better over there. Gosh, I wouldn't want to be stuck with that. He says, I'll take that one. And in a sense, he sees, we're actually told the remarkable, amazing thing. We're told that he sees that it's like the valley of God. And I think in understanding this the way of a sort of Eastern eyes, I think really we're supposed to notice that Lot is kind of presuming. Lot is not looking out for anybody but himself. And he's sort of presuming here and he's saying, I'll take the good things. God isn't judging him. Lot's calling judgment on himself. Abram's certainly not judging him. Abram, by having called on the name of the Lord, is then enabled, if you will, to act in freedom. He has the confidence that allows him to go and to act in freedom and to say to Lot, I'm okay. It's not a flattened out world. It's not a closed system. There is someone who I know, who I'm connected to, who's got me. He's got my future, and he holds my story. So I'm okay. I'm not stressed. You can pick. You pick. And then we find out who Lot really is. But Abram then is able, having acted in the way of the Lord, like Jesus, because he met with Jesus, Abram then is able to continue to respond to Lot in the way of Jesus. Abram is going to save Lot not once but twice. Two times going forward, Abram's going to save him. At one point, some of these sort of evil chiefdoms of the Sodom area are going to come together and they're going to go and they're going to raid and they're going to take Lot and his people. And Abram's sort of, I think we should, I think we're supposed to think Abram saw it coming. And Abram got his, his folks together and his dudes and they went and they got him back. 
And that's a crazy story because when he comes back, there's this incredibly mystical prefiguring of the Eucharist, actually, that happens as Abram returns. Amazing, amazing, you know, sort of numinous moment, this fuzzy, incredible, charged moment that happens. And then later, when the Lord's going to destroy Sodom, and Lot's going to be caught up in that, Abram pleads with the Lord audaciously to save Lot, standing in the gap again like Jesus. So Abram calls on the name of the Lord, and because he does, he's able to act in freedom. He's not worried about what he will or won't have. He's not worried about how that may or may not set the course of his future. It's not a perfect parallel, I know, because he's rich and he's got all these flocks and silver and all the rest, but his flocks could wither up and go away in the dry land. It could all come unglued. But he acts in freedom because he's met with the Lord and he remembers. So then we come to the third, and the third being the best, big moment in this story. Abram does this right thing. Lot makes his decision. Abram's going to be in the less lovely land that doesn't look like the valley of God. And the Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, what's he say to him? Lift up your eyes. Lift up your eyes. Remember. See. See that bigger picture. Don't be constrained. He says, lift up your eyes. Look from the place where you are. Look north and south and east and west. For all the land that you see, I will give you and your offspring forever. I love this bit. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. The Lord says to Abram, you know, like, go all Wendelberry. Just go out there and see the goodness of it. Can you imagine that? Imagine that walk. Imagine the wonder. And you come, oh, look at that. Oh, my goodness. It's incredible. Look at this little oasis I found. Look at these, this rock formation. I mean, just the wonder for the future and for all of the, the sense of God being present for Abram as he walks through the land. This is the quickening of God's spirit saying to Abram, you called on me, now believe. Don't get lost in fear. Don't let the walls close in on you. Don't get bug-eyed and paralyzed and short of breath. There is a larger story. There is a promise. See it. Take wonder in it and hold on. Walk through the breadth of the land. So we come to the fourth of the big moments. It's my personal favorite. Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre. Trees are the most underappreciated thing in the Bible. There is a mystical, I would even say small s, sacramental reality to trees often in the biblical narrative. God uses them. Yes, Abram went to the trees because they make shade. Yeah, okay, I get it. Yes, he went to the trees because when you live out here in this kind of semi-arid, deserty thing, you can see them from afar. Like, oh yeah, that's where I live. It's over there. Let's keep heading for them. I get it. There's a practical side to it. But there's more than that. Think about it. In the scriptures, I've asked you this before, in the scriptures, who are the first things that are given a title. And with titles come authority. 
the tree of the knowledge and the tree of life. I can remember sitting in the library at this excellent institution up the hill reading Meredith Klein, this genius, crazy theologian who wrote about these ancient stories in the Pentateuch. And I can remember just being so excited. I just had to go up to the rooftop and call it out because he's talking about trees in the Genesis creation account. And he points out that they reach up and that they feed on light and God is light. And he's saying, look, this is more than just practical. There's something wonderful going on where God has made these things to teach us to look up and to reach up and they feed on the very essence of God in a symbolic kind of a way. And in these uber-sparse stories, they don't need to tell us that Abram went and you know, lived beside the trees because you could find your tent that way. They don't need to tell us that. These are not directions. There's a mystical, wonderful sense of this. And Abram, every time he comes back to the trees, will remember this moment. And he will remember the walking through. And he will remember what God has done for him. So then what does Abram do? Having come through this, being settled to be able to believe that he will be okay and there will be a future and a hope for him. What does he do then? Being saved now, wholeness, health, story, salvation accomplished. What does he do then? He does the greatest sacramental thing. He builds an altar. He'd built an altar there before. He builds an altar, and that's the fifth and the final big moment in this story. A place to remember, a place to recall and act out the story. So, Abram, this morning, in a world where it's easy, even though we live in the most wealthy country in the world, it's easy to get our eyes busy looking around. It's easy to notice all the things we don't have. It's easy to worry about the future. It's easy to think, how does this thing work out? It's easy to notice all the troubles and all the imbalances and all the other stuff. And yes, absolutely, where there's a justice question, speak, work in the way of Jesus, work for the kingdom of God to be more manifest, for justice to be done. But along the way, be at peace with God who knows you and cares about you and is in your story. And along the way, call on the name of the Lord and live in soul freedom. And let's lift up our eyes and see, and see the goodness of the Lord and remember his promises. Let's, friends, let's learn to live saying, I have something that no one gave me, that no one could take away, that is the greatest thing that there ever could be, the presence of God, who's made a promise with me, has made a covenant with me, has remembered me, he walks with me, he sees me, he brings me home, he holds my story, and ultimately, yes, promises life that never ends. Let's pray, friends. Invite you just to, let's just start by just share with the Lord the places that you feel so burdened or heavy or frustrated about all the things you don't have. And how does life work out?
and then call on the name of the Lord. Say, Lord, you have been with me. You've done these things. This is who you are. This is who you've told me you are. These are the ways you've called me. These are the ways I've walked into that calling. Just call on his whole being. Bring yourself and your story to him. And then hear him saying, I'm here. I've given myself for you. I've opened a way of life. I am present. You have my spirit. Lift up your eyes. Open them up. Believe in a future. Let the Lord meet you. God bless you, friend.